0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms. Now, Savage has just released their new shotgun called the Renegade. The Renegade is tough, reliable, and ready for anything. Whether you're busting clays, dropping ducks, or whacking turkeys, Renegade is built to withstand tough use in extreme conditions. For more information about the Renegade shotgun, visit savagearms.com slash renegade
2: My name is Clay Newcomb and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear We'll talk about tactics gear, conservation but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet chasing bears This is an information-filled podcast that I think is fundamental. Uh, We're going to talk about the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation here at the Global Headquarters. I've got Colby Moorhead and my daughter, my 16-year-old daughter, River Newcomb, with me on this podcast. It's fun. River, you had fun, didn't you? Yeah. 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 Colby, you had fun. Yeah, it was great. So you're going to like this podcast full of facts and information that that, uh, we're kind of doing almost like a book review. So you're going to listen to this podcast listen to it with your kids listen to it with your buddies and, which means uh, you should listen to it multiple times yeah there yeah. you go multiple times well hey we're right in the middle of, uh, of of a of a global pandemic and uh pretty amazing times to be alive so we hope that you're all well and safe we hope your families are safe and uh, while you're at home check out our buddies at the western bear foundation yep um Joe Condellis, Western Bear Foundation. They're uh, they're a hunting conservation organization for bears out west. They're membership driven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you become a member of their organization, you get a copy of Bear Hunting Magazine. True story. Which we are working on the May June issue as we speak. Exciting stuff. Really, it's a great yeah. it's a great it's a great uh, issue. Hey, and as spring bear seasons approach. There are going to be some spring bear seasons open, even though COVID nineteen is disrupting some stuff. Check out Northwoods Bear Products, best commercial sense that that uh, that that we've used, mm-hmm. and uh, NorthwoodsBearProducts.net. dot If you're yeah. baiting bears, it makes zero sense, and I w- I would say this whether they were partners on our podcast or not, yeah, because I've said it for years. It doesn't make any sense if you're baiting bears going to all that effort mm-hmm. and to not be using commercial scents because yeah. those commercial scents are chemically designed to be more powerful and potent than any natural odor and a that'll little, attract
3: bears. A little
2: goes a long way. Yes it does. Yeah. It does. It'll ruin your life if you spill it in your truck. Leave it mm-hmm. I leave mine in the the bed of the truck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, lastly, our buddies at D U Hunting Supply. Yep. These guys are remember that's where we get all our collars yeah. for our dogs. Yeah, yeah. River's a, a Garmin wizard. Um, <laughs> we uh, these guys have a. They're known for their customer service. Buddy Woodbury and his team. They're mm-hmm. they're good people. Up yeah. in Washington, yeah, and uh, they they they're big distributors of all the Garmin products. Yeah, and uh, I'm running an uh, uh, an alpha mm-hmm. unit, which is a handheld unit that Garmin. has a track yep. and train collar. Yep, so you can. Uh, you can track them but you can also train them with the tone yeah um check out du hunting supply for all your hound hunting needs Hounding and hey enthusiast. last thing last thing nukem there's a film that somebody made called nukem can you believe it how about that branding how about that branding <laughs> river and i like it don't we River? yes we do uh, hey in all seriousness it's a good film even if it wasn't about our family mm-hmm. um uh, First Light made a film. Yeah. And you can go watch it at uh, the First Light YouTube channel or firstlight.com slash Nukem, I believe. Uh, or Yeah. We might have you'll, to fact check, fact check that you one. We may have to fact check that, <laughs> but you'll find it. Uh, First Light is also doing some spring bear sales mm-hmm. on that on the firstlight.com right now. They've got one of my bear kits on there, yeah, what I like to use for bear hunting. Yeah. Um, so you can check that out. And this film, it's like an 11-minute film mm-hmm. done by Jordan Riley and uh, Taylor Coleman, Capture Creative. doesn't feel
3: like an 11-minute film. It's quick. It's yeah. Like, it goes by in a flash.
2: Yeah. Uh, really fun. They came to yeah. Arkansas. We squirrel hunted. We showed some really cool bear footage from over the years. Uh, mm-hmm. showed some mule training stuff, some uh, coon hunting stuff. It, really unique film, I think, for the outdoor yeah. industry. Not many mainstream companies are putting out stuff like that. Yeah. It's yeah. Been, uh, anyway. Shameless That was yeah. shameless. It's shameless. Yeah. Check it out at firstlight.com. <laughs> hey, you're gonna enjoy this podcast with River Newcomb, Colby Moorhead, and myself. Yep. We are at the Bear Hunting Magazine Global Headquarters. Dun, da, da, dun We are six feet apart. Yes. Minimum. hmm I have we'll introduce our guest first, Colby. Yeah. To my left, I have River Newcomb. Hello. River is my daughter, and she's going to be a part of the podcast today. And I also have Colby Moorhead. Yep. Colby the Bear Tech Moorhead. Yep. We're going to do something a little bit different than, you know, a lot of the podcasts we're doing, we're traveling, and we're talking to interesting people, and this podcast is more going to be like an information-packed podcast, and... We're going to be talking about the North American model of wildlife conservation. Okay? There it is. That's Mm -hmm. what we're going to talk about. And that's what I want everybody to be able to really... I I feel like this this is the linchpin of our understanding as hunters and our ability, first of all, to understand really what we're doing. I mean, because to blindly participate in something that has this massive history, Mm -hmm. massive history back to the very origins of humankind. And to just blindly participate in it almost seems a little bit irresponsible. Yeah. I've been guilty of that.
3: Well, (laughs) we all have. Not knowing, unknowingly. Yeah,
2: yeah, we all have. And so in an age of knowledge, in an age of understanding, in an age when information is just at our fingertips – it makes a lot of sense that we would we would try to understand these things. So, number one, this is for the participant inside of hunting to understand more. Number two, I think this understanding is critical in our in 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 the public's perception of who we are. Yeah. So, our ability, even as hunters, to just have some of these words, and I and I use that phrase because words are what craft ideology I mm-hmm. mean we're were if you don't have the words then you don't know yeah if you don't if you can't say it and, and not you don't have to say it in a complex way you don't have to say it in an elegant way but knowledge creates an ability to communicate yeah and and we've 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 got to be able in in this day and age when hunters are at this climactic point of trying to justify our relevance in modern society yeah we've got to be able to tell people why we do what we do in our history yeah and have a, a pretty robust rich understanding and i think that's i think that's what is missing it was missing from my hunting upbringing yeah it, it really was i mean yeah. now we understood conservation at some level mm-hmm. but like the depth of some of this we didn't understand at all really and um uh, there you go. We got a heavy breather over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've I feel like a podcast like this like mm-hmm. we're going to take about an hour and we're going to we're going to deep dive mm-hmm. and it's hopefully going to be shallow enough that we could just capture a few principles that will make sense over time. I mean, this isn't going to be the first time a lot of you have heard it. It's not the first time Colby's heard. it. It's not the first time Rivers heard it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the idea is that we could talk about it and it could be something that people could take away from.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I think about when you're talking about words, I think it's not words to have like some in-depth like argumentative conversation, but it's just like some words that would give shape to your belief system, to the things that it's like, well, this is why I do this, yeah. you yeah. know, to provide some, sort, paint some sort of context, not necessarily like I'm trying to convince you that I'm right, exactly. you know, mm-hmm. but it's like, I know the reason that I do the things that I do, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah.
2: River, you you got uh, you've been involved in some conversations over your life with friends who yeah. didn't understand yeah. hunting. I mean, and that's probably the reason I wanted you to come on the podcast was like, you're you seem to be of all the Newcomb kids pretty interested in, uh, in understanding what we do yeah. and being able to tell people that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, any comments on that, River? You want to tell us some juicy stories of <laughs> these fiery conversations you've had with your friends at school?
1: Well, I think just like I, all like in middle school, like everybody wanted to try out being vegetarian and always had mm. some reason. And we would like always get in debates about it. And every single time, like as a hunter, I was more knowledgeable about animals. And every single time as a hunter, I had more like more to say about what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And none of those people are still vegetarian.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the power of protein. The power of yeah. protein. Well, we have a long history with protein. Yeah. So, okay, here's this is also a book review. I should have said this earlier. What we're going to do is, I'm going to try to systematically go through. Some of you know, part, like highlight parts of a book that I'm holding in my right hand right now. It's a new book, and it's called "The North American Model of Wildlife Conservation." And on the cover, it says it's edited by Shane Mahoney and Valerius Geist. Mm-hmm. There were actually about eight or nine contributors, I believe, to this book that wrote different, different chapters. Yeah, but Shane Mahoney and Valerius Geist are the ones that wrote it. Mm-hmm. It's I, I believe it was it's been released within the last three months oh okay Uh, I didn't know that yeah I think it just at the first of the year was released and this is the only book and the most robust book that has been written about the North American model of wildlife conservation yeah and so that's why it is so important Um, this book is like a textbook like it's not like a fun read now it was fun for me it might be fun for you mm-hmm. but it's it's not like a book you're just gonna like give to your kid and say hey read this you'll enjoy it <laughs> have yeah. fun <laughs> yeah no <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's academic uh type you know uh, language but also very approachable very very practical functional and again is the most robust piece of literature that we have that really Mm -hmm. encompasses the North American model of wildlife conservation. I want to start off by saying, I want to give the the history of this model in that this model was built over the course of basically a hundred years in North America. Yeah. It was not developed at one time. There were bits and pieces that were developed over time by different people, by different organizations, by different streams of thought In 19—let's just say—let's see. I believe in 1995, Valerius Geist Mm -hmm. was the one who coined the phrase the North American model of wildlife conservation. Valerius Geist, I believe, is from somewhere in Europe. Pretty sure Mm -hmm. he's from Germany. He was a biologist that came and lived in Canada and was a wildlife biologist. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been on the Hunting Collective podcast before. That's where I've heard him. Okay, and we kind of was introduced to him. Yeah, he's, with, I with believe O'Brien. he's in his seventies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating podcast that they that he did with yeah. Ben O'Brien. Um, Valerius Geist was you know from Germany, so he came here. And so he was more perceptive of what was happening in North America because of the success of big game. And I believe this, as the story went, he was talking to another biologist and he actually said, Yeah, like the North American model of wildlife conservation. And somebody said, Well, we don't have a North American model. And he said, Yes, you do. Let me write it down. Yeah. And he basically fleshed out these ideas of conservation that we now hold true to Mm -hmm. and now have become, after a hundred years, the most successful human wildlife husbandry endeavor of history. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So he was like coming in and identifying the culture that maybe we didn't, weren't able to articulate,
2: but we kind of live by. Right. Right. And so Valerius Geist was the first guy that did that. Um, I want to start off by saying That, and and I'm kind of just moving through this book and I'm going to pull out some quotes. Loss of wild species is escalating rapidly at a global scale. Like, we can't deny that. And we're talking about small animals, we're talking about reptiles, we're talking about amphibians, we're talking about All kinds of stuff. So that is happening. Mm -hmm. That is not just like a left-wing propaganda idea, Yeah, you know, that things are going extinct across the planet. Yeah. But, but, big but, all caps, big but, is that animals that are hunted and managed as game animals in North America are thriving. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there's a powerful contrast right there. Where animals have cultural value, and here that cultural value, value comes through hunting. Mm-hmm. Those animals' habitat is protected. Those animals are protected. And the 29 big game species of animals in North America, for the most part, are st- at least at minimum stable or are thriving. Yep. And now, granted, because of... It, some climate issues and whatnot, some of the caribou and moose populations are struggling yeah. up in the boreal yeah. forest. Yeah. There's some of that going on, but that has nothing to do with... The only reason they're still there is because of hunting. Yeah. So I wanted to say that because th- that's how they started off the book. Uh, that's how Shane Mahoney started off the book, was saying that loss of wild species is a massive deal. But in North America our big game are thriving. Yep. And I think that is that is crazy. Let's talk about what the North American model is. They give a definition and they say that the North American model is an evolved and shared system of conservation laws, principles, institutions, and policies that has enabled the success of Canada and the United States in the recovery, management, and protection of wildlife. And brought them global recognition that's a that's a sentence out of here. yeah, so it's it's not just one thing. it's laws, which literally means game laws. Mm-hmm. It's principles principles would be like a principle of fair chase that mm-hmm. we all have inside of us in North America, whether we mm-hmm. realize it or not, whether we whether we know the word fair chase or not yeah um, we have we have that built in us. institutions, institutions would be like. Businesses and government organizations that are designed to help manage wildlife Uh, policies would be public policy that we have, like the Lacey Act and different Mm -hmm, things that protect wildlife. So that is the North American model. Okay, let's go to what the North American model is, because it has been fleshed out as having seven pillars or what they call the seven sisters of of conservation. River, can you name one of the Seven Sisters of Conservation? She's shaking her head. <laughs> no. She actually told I, me that.
1: I've never heard the phrase Seven Sisters before.
2: Okay. Okay. Like Colby, right. can you? Oh, man. man. I got caught. Him. I caught you know, him. Well, this, that's why you're on this
3: podcast. I feel like if you were to
1: talk about them, I would recognize them, but I've never <laughs> like heard them in this.
3: Yeah. Podcast. Like right after the Justin Spring podcast last year, I, I had them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 with right. no, yeah. When I can Justin Spring. Yeah.
2: Okay, well let's just briefly go through these the the seven sisters of conservation. And I think like if you've never heard these before and you hear these, you're going to see stuff that's built inside of you that you didn't even know where it came from. Mm-hmm. But it came from here. Yeah. And again, these all didn't happen at one time. Okay, so number 1, maintaining wildlife as a public trust resource entrusted to the state to manage yeah that's that's number one so wildlife is put in the public trust and now that needs a little bit of background because the background you know european settlers came from europe Mm -hmm. and the european model was and we can get into the details but there was a time when in in Europe and all the colonies of England, mm-hmm. the king himself literally owned all wildlife.
3: Yeah, that's oh, the wow. king's
2: hein or the king's stagger. Yeah, whatever. exactly. The king's the king's uh, uh, the king himself. And they eventually changed that to where uh, I'm looking for. I'm looking for it right here. Okay, the Game Act of 1671 in England mm-hmm. changed wildlife from being owned by the king to being owned by the landowners. Yeah. Which that sounds like, oh cool, power to the people, but guess who owned land yeah. in England and English colonies, who river?
1: The rich people.
2: That's right. Rich <laughs> folks. So it it became mm. an elite thing. And so that's what that's what the mentality that the European colonies, you know, where Americans came from, mm-hmm. had in their head is that hunting is a rich folk sport. Yeah. And the peasants were forced to be vegans. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So. Sorry. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's harsh. <laughs> well, and now the rich folks are the vegans. <laughs> yeah. No. And, and that is actually an interesting thought because – what we did was we flip-flopped exactly what we came from. And mm-hmm. that's kind of a cool American thing, yeah. you know, like we didn't like the tyranny that we were under, so we left and did something different. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that's a key, key component is that wildlife is owned by the people. Yeah. People are incentivized to want to protect wildlife, and that is a key inside of North American model yeah. is, is incentivizing people, shared ownership, and actually the idea of self-interest yeah. Um, people have an interest in wildlife because it's theirs. That's number one. Number two, number two, River. Number two. Prohibiting of the deleterious commerce and dead wildlife products. I definitely would have worded it, worded it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> These are like the, uh, we're, we're going to break it down into like standard American hillbilly speak, okay? <laughs> that means that you can't sell a deer that you kill. Yeah. It means that you can't kill a bear and sell its gallbladder. Mm-hmm. It means yeah. that you can't market hunt for bears like you could in the early 1800s or through mm-hmm. the 1900s really yeah. and make a living off selling bears. Mm-hmm. Um you know I many times in my short short young young life uh, I'm 40. <laughs> I'm not that I'm not that young. Not um I I've, I've had people want to buy stuff for me like i had a buddy that just loved deer meat uh Mm -hmm. kind of an urban guy yeah he was like man hey you if you kill a deer i'll buy it from you Mm -hmm. and i i'm just kind of like bro you have no idea (laughs) that you have just stepped on the toes of one of the sisters and she will kick you in the shins (laughs) Uh, and i've also i have also oh this is a deep dive i uh i was buying bear bait from a from a donut place yeah, and the people were not from America. They yeah. were not Americans. And, uh, they actually wanted to buy some bear stuff from me, which is highly illegal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go to prison for selling bear parts. Mm-hmm. I honestly believe they were totally ignorant. Yeah. They just, they kind of became my friends and found out that I was a bear hunter. And they were like, Hey, and I was like, we want a claw. No, sir. I cannot at all. I didn't even want to give him anything. You know, I could have been like, I'll give you. I, mm-hmm. I was just like, nope, off limits. But it comes from that. Yeah. Can so you sell na-
1: like claws, like jewelry and stuff?
2: That's a good question. There are parts of taxidermied wildlife that you can sell. Okay. Like mm-hmm. I could sell one of those deer mounts. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. But you can't sell meat. Like I can't sell bear fat Uh you know, like, I can't start making bare fat soap and sell it. Okay. Um, There's some really specific laws. You can sell antlers. Mm-hmm. I could, because see, like, these bear hides up on the wall. Like, I have paid money for those to be turned into almost like a mm-hmm. finished product. A finished yeah, yeah. product that mm-hmm. you can sell. Okay. Yeah. Um. I don't know if you can sell claws, though.
1: Because I feel like you could buy them online. Like, you could buy jewelry.
2: There there are many places where native tribes, First Nation people can mm-hmm. sell. They can sell whatever okay. they want, yeah. okay. as I understand yeah. it. But that, you know, fat in a jar
3: is a weather station, though, I mean. Yeah, that's our weather station.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Okay, so that's prohibiting commerce and dead wildlife, right? Yep. Okay. Number three, the third sister. Number Regulating three. and defining appropriate wildlife use by law. Okay. okay, so the, the contrast one, would have been One waste. Well, no, no, it just means that wildlife stuff is regulated by law. Oh, okay. And law meaning it comes from the government. Okay. And law meaning it's punishable by law. Yeah. You know, so like if we if you mess around and break wildlife law, people are gonna come and arrest you. Yeah or fine you. Yeah. So regulated by it also that it goes from that all the way to the idea that uh, that. Like, if I had 5,000 acres here, I couldn't just manage my own wildlife. Yeah, The wildlife that I had on my 5,000 acres would be managed by law. Yeah, Like, the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission would say, hey, you can only kill six deer a year, mm-hmm. two turkeys, one yeah. bear. For game animals. For game animals. Yeah. Yeah. And all non-game animals are protected, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. uh, By big, just, yeah, you, even non-game animals, mm-hmm. other than, like, Wild Fair hogs, hogs yeah. but they're still regulated by law. Yeah, I mean they are. You can't kill them on public land, but you get the idea. Yeah, because and again, that that seems so normal. It seems so normal for anybody in this country that's a hunter to be like, well, of course wildlife is regulated by law. Well, it wasn't for the last bazillion years before a mm-hmm. hundred years ago. Yeah, are you with me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't regulated yeah. by law before about nineteen twenty. In mm-hmm. Arkansas, wow, yeah. yeah, you know, it was just like whatever, man. You go kill a pile of bears and sell their fat and sell mm-hmm. their hide and sell their meat and make a living. Then good for you. Yeah, not anymore. Okay, that's number three. Gotcha. Any comments, River? How many bears have you killed? Two. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good. That's a good number. <laughs> okay. Number four, fourth sister. Number four. ensuring wildlife can only be killed for legitimate purpose. And okay. I have also the phrasing of these statements; it will be varied in different literature places that you find. Mm-hmm. So I've heard this called non-frivolous use of wildlife. Yeah, which I love. Yeah, because everything that we kill has a purpose behind it. Mm-hmm. So you know, but not all purposes are the same. Mm-hmm. So. A white-tailed deer, we are killing that deer for the meat. Mm-hmm. And there are wanton waste laws that are set in place that regulate. If you shoot a deer, yeah. you have got to harvest the meat off that animal. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also animals that are managed as fur-bearing animals, yeah. which actually is a loophole in the the commerce of wildlife. Mm-hmm. Because a like a, like a raccoon we 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 harvest we kill that animal for the hide Mm -hmm. but also we kill that animal for depredation purposes. Yeah. Because so if if you can kill one animal for the for the betterment of another species that is in peril, Mm -hmm. sometimes there's reason to kill not for food. Yeah. Are you with me? Yeah. Yeah. Predators. Predators. yeah. Yeah. Like you don't you're not legally obligated to eat a coyote if you kill it. Yeah. Um it's, a, it's managed as a fur bearing animal. But that's awesome because, like, you know, any little kid that starts, you know, shooting a pellet gun or what, whatnot is going to want to just go shoot something for fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what does every good dad say to his kid at some point? <laughs> if you shoot that, you're going to eat that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Where did that come from? Yeah. Right here. Yeah. Non frivolous use of wildlife that we don't just go kill stuff for the fun of it. And again, these are powerful principles inside the narrative that we've all got to have. I mean like the common man. It's my dream that the common man, the common hunter that has no deep connection to you know, I mean there there are people that are that interact with hunting at all different levels. And when you when we reach a saturation point, not everybody's always going to know ever nobody will. Not everyone will know all of these, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but there are certain things that reach a saturation point inside mm-hmm. of a system where just it's just common. Yeah. People know it. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's like, yeah. 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 It's culture.
2: And, and I would say right now, this is on the trend upward because a lot of people are talking about this now in outdoor media. Yeah. Um, but still, these are powerful things. So- We're on number four or number five, which is recognizing and managing wildlife as an international resource. This is one of the sisters. Okay. Mm -hmm. This primarily has to do with waterfowl. Yeah. And it comes from the knowledge that waterfowl have a life cycle that is spread out across three continents, some of them. Yeah. Because, you know, all these big-time nesting grounds mm-hmm. up in Canada, that's where almost all our waterfowl live throughout the mm-hmm. summer. They nest, mm-hmm. and then they fly south down into Arkansas and Missouri and all across the country, and we harvest those animals. So if if the United States didn't coordinate with Canada, we'd be in big trouble. Mm-hmm. And so basically we manage... That waterfowl is a wildlife resource across you know ac- across uh, international boundaries. Yeah,
3: yeah, I think even like organizations like Ducks Unlimited and stuff actually fund projects up in Canada. Absolutely, you know, even yeah, yeah. there are U.S. based. At least I think U.S. based co- uh, organization. Yeah. A lot of their their donor
2: monies go up to to Canada. Yeah. For projects, and there and there's stuff going on in Mexico too uh Mm -hmm. we there's there's projects working with the mexican government for stuff that crosses borders you know there's a lot of things that cross borders you know the there's a jaguar yeah do you know that river that jaguars are native to north america yeah (laughs) i just got the the stanky eyebrow from river she said in america yeah jaguar you show daddy
1: (laughs) (laughs) i've never (laughs) had
2: daddy yeah no really (laughs) And and they're not certain that any of them live in America, mm-hmm. primarily in Arizona and New Mexico. Yeah. Um okay. But they cross. They live. A lot of them live in Mexico and cross into the United States. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Guys, occasionally tree them with a uh, uh, dry ground line dogs. Yeah. Oh, wow. Down there. Yeah. Yeah. That pretty sweet. Yeah. And then black bears. Cro- when we were at uh, Big Bend National Park four mm-hmm. years ago, River, we saw bears. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. And we were within sight of Mexico, yeah. Um, yeah. and so you know, you you international, international working together, okay, yeah, okay. Um, number six, number, number six, six. Man, I'm pumped! I'm pumped! This is good. <laughs> uh, utilizing and safeguarding science as the appropriate basis for wildlife policy. I like that one. So basically, <laughs> wildlife management is based upon science. Yeah, not and emotion. Now, That's right. Yeah. And so that's contrasted with that, what you just said, Colby. Yeah. Is that our wildlife has thrived to the point that it has because wildlife has been managed based upon science, not based upon the whims of the uninformed. Yeah, And, you know, kind of like, and we'll use British Columbia as an example. You know, in the last two years, they have shut down the grizzly bear hunt in British Columbia. Yeah. Solely based on the public outcry public outcry perception yeah uh, based upon their perception of it being a trophy hunt mm-hmm. quote unquote air quotes um and just like people just didn't like the idea like i, I think it was said by one of the governors uh, the the leaders there that grizzly hunting doesn't fit with the i I want to use the word narrative but that's not it you know with the with the with the values of the british columbian people he said something like that yeah which If you, and so it wasn't based on science because all the biologists and the hunters and everybody Mm -hmm. was like, hey, wait a minute. We're taking, I think they were taking less than 500 bears per year, maybe Mm -hmm. 300 bears per year out of British Columbia. Yeah. Out of a population of, I don't even want to say, but thousands of animals. Mm -hmm. So it was a very small percentage. Mm -hmm. It was inconsequential, essentially. Yeah. Other than that a hunted population of bears typically acts different than an unhunted population. And yeah. They're safer. There's some research behind that. Some people argue that that's not true. That when they're um, hunted they're safer? They're safer for humans. Yeah. They just yeah. have yeah. The, they just have more of a fear of humans, more yeah. of respect of humans when they're hunted yeah. at all.
1: And wouldn't there be like more car like if we didn't hunt deer, there'd be more cart like stuff like that? Like cart, more residents with deer.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's like, all kinds of issues of of the carrying capacity of the land. Um, in some species, we want to manage under the carrying capacity. Yeah. Like um, like any any uh, any habitat has a carrying capacity for any certain species. Like if we were talking about blue jays, we would say, well, this land right here can hold this many blue jays. So any more blue jays than that is going to be detrimental to the population as a whole. Mm-hmm. They're going to have less food. They're going to have less places to nest. Mm-hmm. Predators are going to increase because of how many blue jays they are. Uh, you know, there's all these negative things. They're going to start getting hit by semis on the road. They're going to be, you know, stealing, mm-hmm. you know, your mom's pie out of her window. Yeah. Uh So, th- but so a lot of times we want to manage just under carrying capacity, and that way you actually have a super healthy population of animals. Yeah. Because there's plenty of food, there's plenty of nesting habitat. There's, plenty, mm-hmm. you know, so. I,
3: I think one of the other things is like that perception comes from where where someone would look at a bear and think about, oh, that bear, mm-hmm. like a, right. like in public perception. But if you're like looking at conver- uh, conservation and you're looking at it from a scientific method, you're looking at the whole group of animals and mm-hmm. not just the one that you see in front of you. Yeah, you know, I think there's a difference in understanding there. It's like uh in the public's eye that is not as knowledgeable inside of it they would look and see a tree and then everyone else would look out and just see like well there's a lot of trees that make up a forest you know yeah. and so yeah. it's like a difference of like emotion of just the one versus like right. what's good for the whole
2: mm-hmm. well i think i heard ranella say it one time and he may have heard it from somebody else say it like this but you know we like the idea of deer better than we like mm-hmm. the individual deer that we take yeah. so yeah we there is we do kill an individual animal mm-hmm. but for the betterment of the whole yeah and so the idea of deer is that they actually thrive they do better bears do better mm-hmm. when there is you know some management that is in correlation with the amount of habitat that they have that fits them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, we got to kill one. And, and I, I recently was writing, working on a little writing project. And, and I said that killing something in order to protect it is kind of an odd shaped pill. Yeah. But mm-hmm. sometimes the truth is hard to swallow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the truth. Yeah. I mean, because it does not make sense. And that's why this story of ours is so com- complex as hunters. Mm-hmm. It's a complex story. It is not understood at a glance. Yeah. You don't just get it mm-hmm. unless somebody shows you and so- unless somebody tells you. And guess what? Such is life. Mm-hmm. Much of life is complex and isn't yeah. understood at a glance. And so, this idea that we've got to kill something to protect it is. An odd-shaped pill. Yeah. yeah. But sometimes the truth is hard to swallow. Yeah. But people p- people can connect with these ideas if they can understand it. Some people yeah. never will. Yeah. You know, I mean, some people are just, they're never going to like the idea of hunting and whatever. They're a small percentage of people. Yeah. Uh, there was a recent study, I think it was 2016, um, that said that in the high 70th percentile of people in America were... Accepting of hunting if the meat was used for food if the animal for mm-hmm. if the animal was used in a utilitarian way yeah that's a really powerful statistic yeah so if people know and and I think we can even read into that more if people have understanding of why and how and how we're using it if they yeah. understand yeah then they get it mm-hmm. yeah and so it's not just meat yeah you know it's not just that piece even though that's a very critical piece mm-hmm. and a foundational core of our hunting. Is that we eat these animals, Mm -hmm. but it's so much bigger, even and more robust than even that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? Very complex. Yeah. Yeah. And so but these simple things are pretty powerful. Okay, so management of wildlife is based on science was number six. So -hmm. number seven is protecting the democratic allocation of citizen opportunity to harvest wildlife. Okay. That's a fancy way to say That the comet protecting the rights of the common man Mm -hmm. to be able to hunt. Yep. And that is truly an American idea. Yeah. Nobody had that idea before. Mm -hmm. I mean, nomadic peoples that wandered this place before there were states and governments did. You know, just said, everybody has a right to hunt. Um, But once governments began to be formed, River, did you know that um, when people began to cultivate grain and gr- there, there's some people anthropologists that believe that grain was the gateway to to the state and by the state, I, I mean the that, government yeah. because grain was the stationary agricultural product that could be taxed. Yeah. yeah. And they regulated it. And, uh, anyway, um, uh, I, I was talking about nomadic people yeah. forming government because there were these nomadic tribes and once they started to do sedentary agriculture they mm-hmm. began to form states yeah. and at that point the government had to get involved with people's lives yeah. Yeah. and uh, I think the first recorded wildlife laws came from what continent? A little quiz I would not have known this uh, no way I would have known this which continent huh? yeah which continent was the first where the first wildlife laws Which where did they come from? I'll give you three more seconds. Three. I would just two, guess Europe. Two, one. Okay, we got Europe and... Did you say Asia? Asia? Just, I
1: don't know. <laughs> Bam! You got
2: it! <laughs>
3: you got
1: it!
2: You, I mean, the buzzer had already gone, so like yeah. if this were Jeopardy or something, you would have been disqualified. Asia. Yeah. Kublai Khan. The Mongol. Good job. Was the first one. Good job, River. <laughs> yeah, don't... We, we can't even elbow five in quarantine. Uh, <laughs> Kublai Khan has the first recorded wildlife management in the 1200s. Wow. And uh, he ordered that there would be no hunting wildlife from March through October, which is essentially the modern Mm -hmm. hunting season for North for, for the Northern hemisphere. Yeah. You know, October through February, that's pretty much our our hunting season. Yeah. Kublai Khan was the first one that did it. And then the game act in England, 1671 was big. So, Okay, great, excellent. Um, th- this book does a good job. These guys do a good job of talking about the the perceived weaknesses of the model. Like okay. They they actually emphasized it so much, I almost was kind of like, come on, guys, you don't have to beat yourself up so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that they said, and I actually think this proves a point to our case, is that one of the criticisms of the North American model is that it doesn't target non-game species, only game species. Yeah. And so, again, going back to the first statement about how, you know, um, there's all this, you know, there's species going extinct, small, big, yeah. you know, but in different places. Long story short, the the model doesn't address the, the small things often, yeah. which to me builds the point that where animals are hunted, where they have value, they are protected, yeah um, okay let's uh let's uh okay, incentivized conservation is the thing that they talk a lot about that is I think something that we ought to be able to talk about is this idea that uh, is that people because they have a right to hunt mm-hmm. they are incentivized to protect it yeah they're incentivized to police themselves yeah I mean like if you're an outlaw poacher. And we're hunting on the same ground. I am probably gonna be, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to you. I'm gonna turn you in. I'm incentivized to protect that wildlife. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty important part. I'm, I'm <laughs> going through my notes here. What are you laughing about, Colby? Just thinking it's like it's the one,
3: it's the one way where it's like, hey, it's good to be a snitch. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. It's like, hey, they're killing our animals. That's exactly right. Okay. So here's some of the major threats. This was in first chapter. Some of the the major threats, um, to, to the North American model is, uh, animal we- welfare and animal rights. I mean, a trend of the age and we, we talk about it a ton on this podcast, but it's anti-hunting sentiment. Yeah. You know, these people that, um, uh, uh, you know, as hunters were a step away from being criminals. In yeah. a lot of ways, when it comes to animal cruelty laws, yeah. which is bizarre. Yeah. I mean, never before in human history have have these kind of things been brought up and 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 thought about. But but it's a major deal. I'm just going to kind of skip over that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, declines in recreational hunting participation, big massive thing. I'm going to read this. Uh, participation in recreational hunting in Canada and the United States has been declining at significant rates for decades. Despite ongoing efforts to encourage hunter retention and recruitment, there has been a net loss of approximately 2.2 million hunters in the United States alone since 2011. That's recent history. Yeah. A decrease in 2.2 million hunters. Between 1991 and 2011, the proportion of U.S. hunters aged 16 to 44, that age decreased from 71 to 45%, which basically means we're not recruiting younger hunters, okay? Um, let's see. Um, approximately 8% of Canadians participated in hunting in 2012, basically about 4.5% of Americans today are hunters. Yeah. But we've got about 11 million people that are hunting, but because of the increasing population Mm -hmm. of America... Our percentage continues to go down. Yeah. And that's a, that is a frightful thing inside of a democratic nation. Yeah. Because democracy means the people have the power mm-hmm. to vote. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, anyway, the, these are big challenges. Yeah. Big challenges. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's, uh, Okay, the second chapter of the book, they started off kind of with this general overview of the North American model, which I think we've done a good job of talking about. Yeah. But I, I want to go back. Well, the, the second the second chapter is about North American ecological history, which okay. to me is fascinating. Yeah. Abs, incredibly, incredibly fascinating, which is basically, what's the history of hunting on this continent? Yeah. and And people need to know this. We need to know this. Um, and, and and I'm not an expert. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not a scientist. I'm just a. I mean, I just. So so this isn't like a fail proof description here. Yeah. But they they talk about it quite a bit in this book. So, River, do you have do you know when the first humans arrived in North America? Colby, do you? You should know this. There was a. I don't remember there was a the century. I mean, century. How many thousand years ago did North Americans arrive? <laughs>
1: okay, okay.
2: I wouldn't have known this either unless I just say... was interested in it. Roughly sixteen thousand years ago. I was so say the 12. oldest, the old. <laughs> you would have been in the ballpark. Yeah. the The oldest archaeological site that has evidence of human occupation. This is a relatively new very new study. Yeah. Cooper's Ferry. Yeah. In Idaho. Yeah. Cooper's Ferry. They recovered stone tools and bones of animals and other things that showed that there was a human camp and it was sixteen thousand years ago. So for for generations there has been in the in the archaeological community they have known air quotes. That humans came from Siberia, which mm. is true. That that still remains true. Yeah. But they believe that humans came from Siberia first through the Bering Land Bridge. Yeah. Every human needs to know this story. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Bering Land Bridge River was when Siberia, you know, Russia was mm-hmm. connected to Alaska by land. You could have walked to Russia from Alaska when there were glaciers. The continent, the, the earth was much colder. Mm-hmm. the The water of the oceans was tied up in glaciers. And so the sea level was much lower than yeah. it is now. And basically humans crossed over into from Siberia into Alaska, which is true. They did that. But this Cooper's Ferry site shows that they were here earlier than that because 16,000 years ago there were glaciers that would have kept people from coming down from Alaska into the lower 48, what's now the lower 48. Yeah. And so they believe – that these people came from Siberia, what is now close to... Well, actually, I'm pretty sure they thought it might have even been from the Japan area um, and, and and used a water route to come up the... It's either the Snake or the Salmon River. Okay. I can't remember. Tess sees a squirrel. Yeah. Um, And so, basically, 16,000 years ago is when humans got here. Yeah. And... Now, this, I think, is a controversial – there is some controversy around this idea, is that humans were highly influential on the extinction of the megafauna. In this Mm -hmm. book, they present that as if that is scientific fact. Yeah, Yeah. Um, I've heard other reputable people talk about how that's just theory. Because River Newcomb, did you know that 16,000 years ago – up until about ten thousand years ago, you know this short time period, humans overlapped a bunch of crazy wild megafauna. Yeah, you know there were mastodons, there were giant saber-toothed cats. Uh, let me let me let me read a couple of these. Short-faced bear. There were uh, or something like that. Let's see. There were there were over sixty genera of large-bodied mammals, giant birds, and reptiles that inhabited the continent. Uh, there were two species. There were camels. in In north america America. yep camels two species of llamas four or five species of tapars a shrub ox a forest forest musk oxen a stag moose peccaries white-tailed and black-tailed deer um there were mastodons there were mammoths woolly mammoths and mastodons were different i didn't know that yep they're they're different um and there were giant short faced bears. There were giant ground sloths. Yeah. That weighed uh they weighed six thousand pounds.
1: Oh my gosh.
2: River. Right here. Right wow. here. Wow. I'm serious. Did you know that there's a there's a fissure? A fissure is like a crack in a rock mm-hmm. within two miles of here, over on the banks of the West Fork over there. I'm pointing to the west. Um east. I'm pointing, I meant. <laughs> Uh, where they found a bunch of bones of Pleistocene animals. So the Pleistocene describes a time period from 250,000 years ago to 10,000 years ago, okay? And from 10,000 years ago to now is the Holocene. These are terms that I'm familiarizing myself with, okay? Mm -hmm. The Holocene, H-O-L-O-C-E-N-E. Is the modern time period that we're in? Okay. So ten. So you take a you take a the Delorean and go back ten thousand years, back to two hundred fifty million years would have been called the Pleistocene. The Earth was colder. Uh, many periods of glacial advance and glacial retreat, based upon the climate getting hot and the climate getting cold. Yeah. Crazy animals and humans were here during that time uh in humans um humans killed mastodons they they point out a study that showed that one of the ways that they think that um humans were so heavily influenced on these killing these megafauna was that they had highly toxic poisons that they put on spear points okay
1: wow
2: yeah, yeah. there's there's studies Makes that sense. show that these that these nomadic hunters and remember these wouldn't be like the Indian tribes that we that we know of today. Yeah. yeah. They would be descendants the, the the Native American tribes that we know. These highly organized tribes would have been descendants of these people. Yeah. But at the time, these were just like nomadic families, mm-hmm. and uh, and they burned. They used a lot of fire. Mm-hmm. They used fire to attract animals. Yeah. But they also used fire to protect themselves. Like in this thick in thick areas they would burn so that these giant predators wouldn't come in their camps so they could yeah. see. Like they used fire extensively yeah. Yeah. across the landscape. That's cool. And uh and basically whatever happened about the time that humans got here, all these animals died off. Yeah. And it was also certainly because of a glacial warming period that melted off glaciers and made things a whole lot different ecologically. But but here's the whole point of that. Why are we even talking about that? Because the big argument inside of modern the modern world is that why don't we just let nature be natural? What's the problem with that river? What's the pro What would you say if someone said, "Hey, nature should just be natural?" We should just let it go. That's that's called the preservationist mentality. Like, we should just preserve nature minus humans. What's the problem with that? What's the ideological problem with that? I th- this place is... Mm, mm, go ahead. Go ahead. You were going, I don't, girl. I
1: don't think that this is the answer you're looking for. But, like, something has to manage Like, there's not okay. a natural predator to... Deer here, here, I don't think. Okay, you're Answered, you're
2: that, yeah. that that is not a wrong answer. I that understand. is not the answer I'm looking for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Colby. Yes. Yes. Go- <laughs> 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 he looks like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> I love it when people do this when they have like this real specific answer they want and you don't know where they're going. <laughs> no. The I the problem with saying, Hey, we need to manage wildlife and just let it go without humans is that you'd have to go back sixteen thousand years. Mm-hmm. To find a time when North America wasn't being heavily influenced by humans. Yeah. Human predation is natural. Yeah. Bada boom. Yeah. That's it. That's what I'm saying. I mean, this idea that humans haven't influenced the landscape. I mean, 16,000 years ago, this place did not look like it does today. Yeah. I mean, quite literally. I mean, did you know that this would have been like boreal forest right here in Arkansas? Oh, Absolutely. Crazy. The yeah. glaciers pushed down all the way to northern Missouri. The okay. climate was massively colder. Yeah. I mean, these oak and hickory trees mm. that we got around here, pine trees, couldn't have even survived. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this place right here was essentially a boreal forest with all kind of wild critters. So, I mean, like so you say what's natural? Well, humans on the landscape is natural. Yeah. yeah. And so this idea, this like disneyfication of of wild places, absent of humans mm-hmm. is bizarre because humans have been influenced in this place for forever. Yeah. Um, one other thing that I learned about in this book that I had never heard before was that they they, they used the term, well, okay, there was a time when Native American populations, pre-european, arrival in north america europeans started getting here like basically in the early 1500s okay okay Th- keep that in your mind i think in 1517 ponce de leon landed in florida mm-hmm. and he was one of the first guys that that came in and then french fur trappers the french were the ones that settled much of the interior yeah before even the english did and the spanish did yeah um There was a time even before that when some anthropologists believed that Native American populations were as high as 18 million people in North America. That'd have been cool to see. By the 1700s, there were only approximately 600,000 Native Americans in North America. Yeah. So there was a time like you you go here in the midwest and you see evidence of massive native american civilizations that were not here when lewis and clark came lewis hmm. and clark explored the missouri and on up to the yellowstone yeah. stuff in the early 1800s yeah um and so the early 1800s is the first picture like documentable picture that we get of what north america looked like yeah well what i'm saying is what they said is is that there was a time when there was a ton more because by that time there were only like six hundred thousand Native Americans yeah there was a time when maybe maybe there were millions of Native Americans mm-hmm. so think about the ecological impact of that, yeah, so something happened, mm-hmm. and obviously we know something very negative happened to Native American populations when white Europeans came they brought you know disease that wiped them out they Killed them. I mean, it was, you know, yeah. just genocide, essentially. Yeah. Um, but what they believe, some anthropologists, biologists believe, is that what Lewis and Clark saw was actually an artifact. It was an interesting usage of the word artifact. An artifact meaning it's an example. It's like evidence of something that humans did. Yeah. Because basically when all the native american populations died back for whatever reason which we literally don't know that wildlife populations surged yeah and so what lewis and clark and them saw and recorded was was, unnatural was unnatural yeah you got it yeah and so um that's bizarre yeah i mean i'd never thought about that you know there was a time when uh essentially rocky mountain elk it wasn't rocky mountain elk but went from you know all the way from the pacific ocean basically to the to pennsylvania Mm -hmm. you know there were elk here in arkansas there were elk all throughout the interior there were bison i'm reading a book about the ozarks right now Mm -hmm. and there were bison in the ozarks into the 1840s yeah wild bison yeah running in these big valleys that'd be cool yeah um Bison, I'm not sure how far East Bison went, but I think they went, uh, no, Bison went as far as Pennsylvania. Okay. Bison. Okay. Um, and so basically they were like, when there were millions of Native Americans running around, mm-hmm. there weren't that many here. Yeah. Um, I'm reading the book right now, Cabeza de Vaca, okay. which is the f- earliest recorded account of of uh, Europeans traveling in North America. And this guy, Cabeza de Vaca, uh, which my wife, who speaks Spanish, said that means the cow's head. And I was like, no, it doesn't. It was that guy's name. And then turns out she was right. <laughs> it means the guy's last name was the cow's head, uh, Cabeza de Vaca. Um, <laughs> he traveled from Florida to Texas and spent a ton of time in Texas. Yeah. And the wildlife he talked about was very sparse during that time. Yeah. Um and uh, but that was in the fifteen hundreds mm-hmm. so wildlife populations can rebound very quickly, yeah. I mean even like thirty years of not hunting an animal, massive rebound. I mean, think about yeah. Arkansas and the bears, and yeah, like so anyway, essentially, about the time we got here, Native American populations died anyway he he only talked about seeing deer, a few bear and puma, and man, that book the whole time. Essentially, to me, the highlight of the book is Native Americans walking around hungry. Mm-hmm. Really, like he talked about how these people were just incredibly resilient people mm-hmm. for how they could withstand hunger. Wow. Talking about these Native American tribes, it's an enduring quality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, golly, incredible, yeah. incredible book. Yeah. Um, but I say I'll, I I point out all of that talk was to highlight this idea of what is natural. Yeah. Because that might be something that someone says, like, why don't you just let nature be nature? And then, you know, we are nature. Yeah. We have as much of a right to be here as a predator Mm -hmm. as a wolf does. Yeah. We have as much of a right to be a predator. We've actually been here longer than coyotes. You know, coyotes are expanding eastward, and they weren't natural here. Mm -hmm. you know i mean they were natural in parts of the u.s yeah but i mean like yeah i'm I'm making a point i'm Mm -hmm. hyperbole (laughs) uh exaggeration make a point right river you know that don't you i did um so i i think that's um that's incredible um american landscapes aren't natural when they're free of humans humans are natural there's never been harmony between humans and nature. Yeah, I mean, just like there's never been harmony between wolves and elk. Yeah, wolves have always killed elk. Elk have always been afraid of wolves when they saw them, <laughs> or, or or if they or know what's exhibit, good for them, exhibited fear-related responses that humans would say is fear. Yeah. You with me? Okay. Here's here's the last thing. We may we may end on this because okay. I don't want to dig too deep. Uh, we may have a part two of this, but the North American Model of wildlife conservation depends on three things. Okay. And I think this is fascinating. Okay. All right. The So let me start off by saying that the North American model is unexportable. Mm-hmm. Like, if this model was so successful, and, and I want to qualify this statement with some research, but I, because I say this a lot and I just want to make sure that's right, we have more big game than anywhere in the world. Yeah. So, I mean, like, what we're doing is working. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when something works, like, the idea is that you could export it, Mm -hmm. you know, to somewhere else. Yeah. But there's reasons why it's inexportable. Okay. Number one, the North American model of wildlife conservation is dependent upon democracy. Okay. It is absolutely dependent upon democracy and the idea that the people are incentivized to use to, to to have access to wildlife resources and for them to be able to vote and to manage. You know, vote is probably not the right word. But for the people to manage. The These pe- aren't the king's yeah. deer. Yeah. These are your deer. Mm-hmm. That's democracy. The people That's that America. Ha- people that have a voice. People that have a voice. Yeah. That's right. That's Feedback. democracy. Yeah. Number two, this is a good one. By golly. You got any guesses for what it would be? You don't know. Um armed citizenry okay this thing is built upon the idea that the common man can go and hunt there was this uh there was this king in the 18 in the 1600s that used the game act of england to disarm the citizenry hmm. do you remember the, the game act was one of the first european game laws where you were saying that it is it, it, they belong to the landowner they they belonged to the landowner Yeah. and so what what happened was like uh Weapons were, I'm not going to say they were evenly distributed, but like a peasant might have a gun mm-hmm. and a rich guy might have a gun too. Yeah. Well, when they said, hey, only the rich guys can hunt on their own land, it gave the king justification to go and disarm mm-hmm. the, the, the the common peasants. Yeah. And so um, I say that to say that the North American model relies on the idea that the common man, like Colby Moorhead and mm-hmm. Clay Newcomb and River Newcomb, yeah. have guns. Yeah. Where else in the world is that normal? Yeah. Nowhere. Exactly. Yeah. And so, if we didn't have guns, we would not be incentivized to protect wildlife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because we wouldn't have any. We, we couldn't go hunt them. So it, it's like this. It's 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 this complex web, mm-hmm. which I think is fascinating. Yeah. Armed citizenry, and yeah. and that even goes to the to show the importance of, you know, sometimes as a outdoorsman, sometimes I've seen NRA stuff and I've, I've, I've been like, uh, you know, trying to connect outdoor stuff to totally all of their message, but it's massively true. I mean, the NRA is in just their voice is, is like pretty foundational inside of, inside of this idea. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I can see that. Um, because, you know, the NRA represents a lot of gun owners that aren't mm-hmm. hunters. Yeah. You know, Um but but those guys are contributing to conservation big time. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about Pittman Robertson. Man, yeah. we may have to do a whole nother I th- podcast. I think with the
3: NRA, it's just like fighting for, like, rights that you have. You know, it's just like your rights, what you have access yeah. to, what you, yeah. you should have. It's like we fight for your right to own a weapon, even if you don't want to own a weapon, you yeah. know. Yeah. And so I think that same thing could fit inside of this to where it's like, you know, you own the this wildlife and regardless of whether you're ever gonna use that or not, it's like we're still gonna fight so that you own your wildlife, you know. Yeah. Yeah yep. or have a right
2: to it. Armed citizenry. Number three, and this is this is where kind of my heart inside of communication lies in a lot of ways. Is number three. So this is again why the what the North American model depends on okay. is a public perception that wildlife is a renewable resource for consumption. Yeah. So just this, just a general idea that if you see a deer out in the field, that you could kill that deer and eat it. Mm-hmm. You could kill that deer and bring it home, and you're not being detrimental to wildlife by that. So the idea the public perception. So it's not we're not talking about hard science. We're talking about perception. Yeah. So that goes back to the idea or you know you know how how are we perceived? How are we portraying ourselves? Yeah. As hunters in a world that's full of cameras, in a mm. world that's full of communication. How are we portraying ourselves? How are we perceived? And and this thing depends upon the the mass of people perceiving wildlife as a renewable resource for consumption. Mm-hmm. And so that just boy, you could have a whole podcast about that right there. Yeah. Um but powerful things to think about, powerful tools for us to know about. River, what's your biggest takeaway from our conversation?
1: Go Colby first. Colby, Colby first. first. River I'll, I'll River nakes, is so nakes.
2: impacted. She doesn't even know what to say.
3: Colby, what's your what's your biggest takeaway? You know, I think my biggest takeaway is uh just how that thing is so ingrained in cyber culture, like growing up inside of like the outdoors where, you know, whenever I was born my dad was a commercial fisherman and then we grew up just hunting yeah. and everything. It's like I wouldn't be able to 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 be able to say these things and my dad wouldn't be able to name one probably either yep, yep. but it became part of a culture to where it's so ingrained and I think one of the things that I think about is something that was in the first like the Newcomb video was where you were talking about how it's like I don't care if my kids hunt when they grow up it's, but I want them to have a good view of the values and the culture that they had Yeah. and so I think that that kind of plays hand in hand with that idea of just like things being built inside of the culture of like a family and in the culture inside of like some sport and just being one of those things that it's like you can track the the flow of that through generations even if you can't like talk about the spark of it, you know? Yeah. And so I think for me, like just seeing how shifting something today inside of like my understanding or my context will have an effect on the others that I touch. And so that's really like representing uh this thing correctly and understanding and being able to have words to shape it could really help in ways that we'd never really know but it just did something inside of somebody yeah. where it's like you know i got yeah i'm okay with that you know i'm not gonna do it but you know it's it's something that i see someone values and i and i see that there's value inside of it for them you know yeah yeah, yep that's good
1: yeah um i think just with the whole conservation model and inside all those things I don't think before this, I wouldn't have been able to like say those specific points, but when you were talking about them, it was really easy to like connect that to something we'd done. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there is no way in the world that we would like, even when we were little, we would go outside and squirrel hunt during squirrel season. And there was no way that we wouldn't like skin it. And like, we would always come in and we like, cook our mom would cook it or Willow would cook it or something. Mm -hmm. And like all that is a part of our culture. And, and just in hearing this, it just shows like we participate in nature. And there's all Mm -hmm. these things that like, and I think back to whenever I had been talking to people that are vegetarians or vegans or something, like there's always this thing of where they really want to like, or they talk about like loving the animals and not wanting to hurt them. But it's like, we are, and it's like, we love the animals and we respect those animals. And we know, like I'm every single time it's like, I'm more knowledgeable about that animal and I have way, like the amount of respect that I have for a black bear in Arkansas, is way more than they could even fathom and it's like this thing of respect for the animals and participating and preserving mm-hmm. them and keeping them like that is the the model of conservation in america mm-hmm. yeah, i thing, think that
3: yeah. participating is a big deal because it's like yeah. whenever you're going in you're going into a place that they live and you're participating with yeah. with their environment it gives you a different perspective yeah. on everything because it's like i'm a participant inside participant
2: inside this natural thing yeah.
3: you know yeah
2: yeah very good, very good. Well, hey, check out this book. Uh, it's called The North American Model of Wildlife Conservation, edited by Shane Mahoney and Valerius Geist. Like I said, it it's a, it's 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 thick. Uh, well, it's not thick. It's not, it's not it's not that long of a book, but it's uh fascinating. I think it needs to be in everybody's bookshelf. And uh, River, why don't you uh, close out the podcast? You know what to say. Why does everyone freeze I up? <laughs> Why I, everybody? Done this, I've done
1: this twice. Every everybody, team, I know what it is.
2: everybody, just freeze <laughs> up. Hey, hey! Before we get off though, we gotta give a plug for the film.
1: Nuka. <laughs> we have probably watched that like fifty times, and I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> will, he'll come that, if he comes to the house for one second. He wants to turn. <laughs> and we love it. We it
2: love does. It, I'm trying to boost the, the first light algorithms <laughs> yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Uh, no, first light made a film. They came to they came to Arkansas. Stayed at our well, they didn't stay at our house, but they were at our house for yeah, three or four days time. and filmed. And we they made an incredible film. For so, sure. I mean, it, I, I'm I'm biased about the content, but I'm not <laughs> even talking about the content. If they had devoted what they devoted to telling anybody's story, it would have been good. Yeah, it's a really good capture. For sure it really was yeah. and uh and so the the story is called it's called nukem um and it's uh it's about it tells the story of of, of me training a mule it tells the story of kind of some small game hunting yeah. squirrel hunting on mules yeah. and kind of that the ideology around that it talks about bears mm-hmm. talk about a dream i had of a big buck that catalyzed me into the outdoor industry yeah um and then uh it ended with some uh a really strong appeal for for passionate people Mm -hmm. as hunters which we are we're passionate people yeah uh, to be balanced inside of the way that they manage their life with their between their family and their passion. Yeah, and that's been an ongoing process inside of me in a in a continued process. Yeah, is is is, is that? And, and I was so glad that that's what they captured. I said this mm-hmm. before, but I talked about a ton of stuff that yeah. they didn't put on the film. Yeah, um, I really did a ton yeah. of stuff, and that's what they wanted to talk about, which I was thrilled with. Yeah. So yeah, check out First Light. Uh, first light youtube channel there's a home if you go to firstlight.com there's a sweet picture mm-hmm. of a dude shooting a bow off a mule <laughs> on their uh, on their website so yeah check yeah. that out but river close this down
1: i know what it, i know what it <laughs> I know what wow it why is this I so hard it i just oh 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 keep the wild places wild because that's where the bears live all right right Bam, you got it. Yeah,
2: you got it.
0: (laughs) You ever get that feeling? The walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com they've got ranches forests mountains streams you name it search by acreage you can search by location you can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of land.com it is where the adventure begins hey we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries now if you're like me enjoying the great outdoors you need gear that is as reliable as it gets that's why i power my adventures with interstate batteries